Pence says Trump was wrong and, quote, un-American about the election. The lead starts right now. Former Vice President Mike Pence calling out his former boss just moments ago, saying former President Donald Trump is wrong and that he had, quote, no right to overturn the election on January 6, 2021, that nothing could be more un-American. What kind of backlash might Pence face from his own party now? And speaking of which, the Republican National Committee censures the two Republican members of Congress, January 6 committee members Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, censured in part for participating in, quote, persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. Is that how the Republican Party views that violent, deadly assault on the Capitol, on democracy? The Republican Civil War over that dark day. That's ahead. And as the games begin, the Chinese government cynically pushes an athlete from its ethnic Muslim minority to light the torch, hoping that you forget the genocide the Chinese government's committing against that very same ethnic group. <clears throat> Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. Just in. Former Vice President Mike Pence just moments ago directly took on his former boss, Donald Trump, and Donald Trump's outlandish, untethered claims about the election. Take a listen. And I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. I want to bring in CNN's Jeff Zeleny, as well as CNN's Phil Mattingly. Uh, Phil, this is shocking. The language he's using, wrong, un-American, big deal. No question about it. And this was a choice. There is perhaps nobody more cognizant of or clear eyed about what the former president's response would be to these remarks than his former number two, his former deputy and former vice president, Mike Pence. Mike Pence decided to lay out very clearly and in as strong a language as we've seen, not only his disagreements with the president as a practical matter in terms of his role as the vice president on that specific day, but in broader, bigger and more dramatic terms about the meaning of January 6th. He's always referred to that day as a dark day, always made clear he would never see eye to eye with the president on this issue. But when you look at what was said today in the context of the this moment, a moment where because of the investigations that are ongoing, we've gotten a much better sense of what the vice president was dealing with, the pressure he and his team were feeling on a day-to-day basis in the lead up to January 6th, what he dealt with on that day. He and his family evacuated as protesters closed in, some of them chanting, hang Mike Pence as that happened. The vice president making very clear what so few Republican leaders will at this moment in time, not just how wrong the president was on the technical details of counting electors, but the broader meaning of that day and the president's continued push, even in recent days, uh, to overturn the election, saying explicitly he thought Mike Pence should overturn the election. The framing I think I was most struck by, Jake, was when the former vice president said this, the truth is there's more at stake than our party or our political fortunes. If we lose faith in the Constitution, we won't just lose elections, we'll lose our country. Obviously, dramatic framing, but also true framing. And from somebody who very clearly is preparing for a potential 2024 run, where former, former President Donald Trump, A, may run, and B, is considered a kingmaker in the party, Jake. Yeah, and, and Jeff, um, 
this division in the Republican Party, those who acknowledge what happened, the reality of it, that Joe Biden won, that Donald Trump lost, that the election was free and fair, that there was not enough fraud uh, or irregularities to have affected the election, and that what happened on January 6th was a horrific, violent account uh, inspired and incited by President Trump and his minions, versus the other Republicans who will not acknowledge that, this continues to play out. And today, the Republican National Committee censured, rebuked officially, two of their own. And the resolution uses some stunning language, Jeff. Jake, a very split-screen moment from Florida there where former Vice President Mike Pence was speaking to the Federalist Society. As Phil was saying, this is a group of uh, leading constitutional lawyers in the Republican Party across the country in Salt Lake City uh, just a short time before this, a couple hours before this, the Republican National Committee members from all across the country voted to, as you said, censure, uh, sanction, punish, or, you know, use whatever word you would like, two members of Congress who were part of the investigation into what happened on January 6th. But Jake, it went beyond that. Look at the language here in this resolution adopted by the RNC today in Salt Lake City. Let me read part of it to you. It says this. It says, Representatives Cheney and Kinsinger are participating in a Democratic-led persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. They are talking here about January 6th. Shortly after that, when those three words were highlighted, the Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna Romney McDaniel uh, tried to clean some of this up, issuing a statement, adding some words onto that. Let's look at this as well. She says this, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger crossed a line. They chose Nancy Pelosi in a Democratic-led persecution of ordinary citizens who engaged in legitimate political discourse that had nothing to do with violence at the Capitol. So trying to uh, parse words here at the very least. But the bottom line here is in that RNC uh, sanction uh, of two members of Congress, they were calling this legitimate political discourse. Of course, Jake, we know now at the time we knew it was anything but that. But these show the stark divides in the party. The RNC there sanctioning them and former Vice President Pence saying the obvious that in fact what happened on January 6th we know to be true. Well, Jeff, just to be clear, because I think it's entirely possible that the Republican National Committee uh, censure resolution was was written, I mean, these people are not dumb. They know what they're doing. They know what they're writing. They know that there is a sizable chunk of their party that thinks that the attack on the Capitol, there was nothing wrong with it, that the people in jail for their crimes are political prisoners. Donald Trump is among them. Uh, Don't we think that it's more likely that they knew what they were doing with that awkward language and now they're just trying to clean it up? I think absolutely. And what they were trying to do clearly, I mean, the reality is this resolution has no authority and it had been watered down from earlier versions. They simply were trying to push this through uh, to try and appease uh, the people who believe uh, what happened on the 6th was an attack, of course, was, uh, you know, against the law, against the Constitution. So, yes, they were trying to, uh, you know, sort of get this uh, through by appeasing the uh, President Trump supporters without question. But look at what Liz Cheney, just a short time after that vote, she had a short and simple but weighty response to it as well. She put out a video of the officers being attacked that day, and she said this, this was January 6th, this is not legitimate political discourse. So she, of course, is keeping on her uh, committee work on January 6th. But again, Jake, the stark divides here 
inside this Republican Party have not been made more clear in a span of a couple hours than they were today. Right. And just to, to underline the point, obviously, Congresswoman Cheney is correct. And the Republican National Committee under Chairwoman McDaniel constantly, they still have the tweets up now, push forward these deranged lies about the election. I'll, I'll tweet one in a second when I, during the commercial break about Sidney Powell, the, the untethered uh, lawyer, making wild claims about the election and about how Trump actually won. On the Republican National Committee Twitter page right now, um, Phil, we should know something that's very important to the American people. A great day uh, on the economic news front. Uh, I'm sure uh, they're, they're breathing a sigh of relief at the White House. A sigh of relief, maybe some high fives as well. And I think everything we're talking about underscores the stakes of this moment, the stakes for this administration. And it's administration that over the course of the last two weeks, Jake, whether it's through blowout growth numbers on the economic front, whether it's the elimination of the leader of ISIS, the opportunity to, for the president to leave his mark on the Supreme Court, and now a jobs number that surpassed every expectation for the moment, President Biden having a very good couple of weeks. America's job machine is going stronger than ever. The U.S. economy has weathered the Omicron surge. Our country is taking everything that COVID has a throw at us, and we've come back stronger. A clear message coming from a January jobs report that exceeded all expectations. Here's the good news. We have the tools to save lives and to keep businesses open and keep schools open, keep workers on the job, and sustain this historic economic comeback. The U.S. adding 467,000 jobs in January, far surpassing median economist estimates of 125,000. And warnings from President Biden's own economic team that the Omicron surge was likely to skew data due to sick workers. The month's jobs report may show job losses in large part because workers were out sick from Omicron. Instead, an exclamation point, one that included upward revisions of nearly 700,000 jobs added in November and December with wages that grew 5.7% from the year prior and labor force participation rate that hit pre-pandemic levels, all despite 3.6 million Americans missing work due to illness in January. For a White House battling price increases that remain at a nearly four-decade high. We still need to ease the burden on working families by making everyday things more affordable and accessible. And persistent supply chain snarls that continue to exacerbate that trend all playing into pessimistic public views of the economy and a country administration officials view as, in the words of one, just flat out over it. I think it's more than just inflation. These past two years due to COVID have been brutal for people. People are tired, they're exhausted, they're depressed. But the jobs report marking a rare, unequivocal positive, one that brings total U.S. job creation to a record 6.6 million in Biden's first year in office. At the same moment, COVID cases are dropping dramatically nationwide. The COVID crisis has been cut in half, down in half in just three weeks. For Democrats who have for months engaged in bitter messaging and agenda fights, a clear boost for the political battles and midterm elections that lie ahead. We also celebrate 467,000 jobs created last month. We salute President Biden for his great leadership 
And Jake, another positive for the administration that isn't getting as much attention. While the president was touting those job numbers, the House was passing his top agenda item at the moment. A sweeping economic and industrial policy bill still needs to be reconciled with the Senate, but moving forward on a key legislative priority as well, Jake. All right, Philip Banningley, thank you so much. Here to discuss the director of the White House National Economic Council, uh, Brian Dees. Uh, Brian, good to see you. So no one expected the jobs report to look like this, at least publicly. Uh, it's a great sign that wages were up 5.7% last year. Um, but we also need to note inflation was also up 7% from 2001 to 2022. That is the steepest climb in prices since 1982. So What do you say to those Americans who say, I'm glad wages are going up, but they're not going fast enough uh, for me to afford basic goods uh, and the rise in prices there, cars, gas, food? Well, we still got a lot of work to do, but I think what we say is we are making uh, historic progress. This was a striking jobs report, striking in terms of the breadth of job growth, not only in January, but the consistency of growth over the last several months with those revisions that were just mentioned. What we're seeing is incredible resilience in this American economy, the American worker, and American capitalism that is able to generate robust job growth and generate that wage growth. So what we need to do now is focus on keeping those strong wage gains, particularly for those in the bottom half of the income spectrum, and get prices to uh, come down and normalize. And one of the big uh, agenda items there is how can we build more things in the United States, starting with semiconductors. And the legislation that passed the House today would take a big step forward there. You know, car prices represent about a third of inflation over the last year. If we could build more cars here in the United States with more resilient supply chains for semiconductors, that would be a big step forward. So more work to do, but this is a very positive, uh, positive single for the Amer- American economy and the American people. Sure. More jobs created in the first year of a presidency than ever before. Uh, that's great news, although obviously part of that is, com- is the idea that we're coming out uh, of the pandemic. Um, the most recent Gallup polling, however, shows that only 33 percent of Americans are satisfied with the economy right now. That it's largely driven by inflation. So how do you turn that around? Uh, obviously, consumer confidence is important. Sure. And, but I do think it's important to start with the context, which is it's not just jobs. We've seen the strongest economic growth in nearly 40 years. We saw the largest reduction in child poverty. Um, uh, in, in some significant time. So a lot of really important metrics and important progress. So then the question is, how do we uh, go at these price increases and how do we normalize the economy where people are tired, they're frustrated? It's been a long, uh, it's been a long time dealing with this pandemic. And so our focus is pretty clear. We need to work to get COVID under control. We are making real progress on that front. We have the tools to do this so that we don't have to go back to lockdowns. We can keep schools open. And then we need to go at the elements of our economy to try to move goods, move services faster and cheaper through the economy. That's about supply chains. It's about semiconductors. And it's also about meeting typical families where they are around their kitchen table and say, how can we lower some of the costs you face? How can we lower your prescription drug costs? How can we lower health care costs? How can we lower, lower child care costs? That's the next big agenda item that we need to work with Congress to try to make some progress on as well. Leisure, hospitality, retail, all of those sectors added new jobs. But a recent report from the National Restaurant Association suggests that the restaurant business is likely never going to return to the pre-pandemic level. Seven in 10 restaurants simply do not have enough workers. 50% of restaurants say staffing is going to be their top challenge this year. 
What do you tell companies that are, that are hungry for workers and just can't find them? Well, this jobs report today is really good news on that front. The strength of the uh, job gains in leisure and hospitality and restaurants and the revisions over the last couple of months suggest it's been a strong couple of months uh, in that sector. And those wage increases are bringing more people uh, into, uh, into jobs as well. So, you know, the more that we can normalize economic activity, which is about also getting the, uh, the, the virus in check, the more that we can get people out there and spending more of their money out shopping, going to movies, uh, as opposed to doing things at home. We're seeing some promising signs uh, in that respect. We're seeing some of that shift from good spending on goods to spending on services. That's where we need to see more momentum, like what we saw in today's jobs report. There's also this phenomenon that I want to ask you about, because help me understand these numbers. The U.S. is not yet back to the pre-pandemic job numbers. Uh, I think you're at, we're at 87% or something like that. Yet there are millions of Americans, a near record, quitting their jobs, what's known as the great resignation. And I, I know you're going to tell me a lot of people quit their jobs during the pandemic and weren't able to come back because of child care issues, but that's not everyone. Where are these millions of workers disappearing to and how do we get them back to work, back to pre-pandemic levels? Yeah, it's a great question. Let me explain. When you look at the number of people who quit... Uh, that is that is in the context of the overall number of people who got jobs. So in any given month, when you see more people quitting, we're seeing even more people taking new jobs. It's actually a sign of positive dynamism in the economy. What it means is people are leaving jobs to find new job opportunities, uh, potentially with better wages, potentially with better benefits. And that's there's a lot more opportunity uh, to do that in this economy. The other thing that we're seeing is... 30% increase in applications to start new small businesses. We're seeing extraordinary small business creation. Some of those people are quitting their jobs to take a chance on a new idea, a new innovation that might help our economy and create jobs down the road. So the, the, the number of quits really needs to be seen in the context of the overall number of people getting employed. And as this uh, monthly job gr- uh, report underscores, the overall number of people employed in this economy is not only growing, but coming back at a much faster pace than prior recoveries. We still have work to do. We still have a ways to go. But the momentum is definitely moving in the right direction. Brian Dees, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. The U.S. is nearing a new tragic milestone in the pandemic, but there are new encouraging signs today. That's next. In our health lead and. You thought you had a crappy job. Scientists at the CDC have published new data on wastewater to get a more accurate read of COVID infection rates in communities. It might be dirty work, but analyzing human feces, scientists say, can detect a surge in positive cases four to six days earlier than typical testing can. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports, this is important work being done by folks who really know their stuff. Case counts are down, hospitalizations are down. Is the death toll starting to plateau? As we get to a better place in this pandemic, specifically as our uh, hospitalizations and our our deaths come down in particular, it will be easier for us to pull back on, on restrictions. Still no clear federal guidance, but Denver ends its indoor mask mandate today and Connecticut could allow districts to decide whether kids still need to mask up in school. We're taking a good hard look at the numbers and going to make up our minds, say, in less than a week. The CDC, for the first time, just published data on levels of coronavirus in our wastewater. 
at more than two-thirds of test sites, levels are down from 15 days ago. What we need is effectively tools to help us understand what's going to happen before it happens. Right now, wastewater may be one of those tools. This afternoon, CDC vaccine advisors voted to approve Moderna's vaccine for adults. It has been used under an emergency use authorization. I believe we have 13 yeses, zero noes. But looks like the U.S. will miss the WHO goal of 70% fully vaccinated by mid-year. The European Union is already there. And the WHO now talking about a plausible endgame in Europe. Vaccination, immunity from prior infection and the coming spring. Leaves us with the possibility for a long period of tranquility, a ceasefire that could bring us enduring peace. On the condition that we, one, consolidate and preserve immunity by keeping vaccinating and boosting. Today, Austria made vaccination mandatory for all adults. Not everyone's happy. There was a protest with Europop. Coming up. And another sign of creeping normalcy here in the U.S. Southwest Airlines will soon begin again serving booze on board its flights. But the union that represents their flight attendants is not happy. They say it will just make enforcing that federal mask mandate on planes even harder. They call this move by Southwest unsafe and irresponsible. Jake. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health, Dr. Ashish Shah. Dr. Shah, if analyzing wastewater can give scientists a clearer and, and quicker picture of COVID infections in a community, should public health professionals go off that data rather than case counts from testing? Yeah, so Jake, first, thanks for having me back. Yeah, we've known for almost two years now that wastewater is a really good sort of early warning signal for how much infection there is. People just start passing it through their GI tract. Uh, it gets out there and before they get symptoms and often before they go get tested. And when testing runs low and infection numbers are hard to track, wastewater is really good. So it's a really good supplement to what we already are tracking. The New York Times published this article about, quote, cryptic lineages in wastewater samples in New York, which are unique mutations of coronavirus not previously seen in human, human patients, quote, the researchers themselves are torn about the lineage's origins. Some lean toward the explanation that the virus is coming from people whose infections are not being captured by sequencing, but others suspect that the lineages may be coming from virus-infected animals, possibly the city's enormous population of rats. Even then, the favored theory can change from day to day or hour to hour, unquote. Um, what's your reaction to that? I mean, it seems kind of concerning, uh, especially given the widely accepted origin that uh, theory that coronavirus was bat to human transmission. Yeah. So what we know now is there's been so much transmission of this virus that it has gotten into various animal species uh, and it is circulating among animal species. One of the reasons why we're going to have a near impossible time ever eradicating this virus. Um, you know, there, mutations happen. We're picking them up in wastewater, whether they represent random mutations that don't mean much in humans or in animals. We're going to really have to try to sort that out. You often use the analogy that COVID spikes are like um, weather. When cases are high, it's a downpour. When cases are low, it's like a drizzle. And we can start thinking about putting away our raincoats, a.k.a. our masks. Um, the level of community transmission in the U.S. is still very high nearly everywhere. 
including Colorado, a state that relaxed its mask mandate today. Uh, Do you think that was a mistake? I think they should have waited a couple more weeks. Look, infection numbers are just plummeting across the country, which is really good news. But you're absolutely right, Jake, that at this moment, infection numbers are still high compared to kind of what we've seen in other waves of the pandemic. I think they'll be in much better shape in the next two, three weeks. And I would have waited until then uh, before I would have pulled the mask mandates. You heard in Nick's piece just now a World Health Organization official signaling the end of the pandemic in Europe due to plateauing deaths. For the first time in a while, deaths are plateauing in the United States, although they're still above 2,000 a day. How do you interpret that? Are we closer than ever to this spike, this pandemic ending? Well, I think we're certainly closer than ever this surge coming to an end. The big question is, are we going to have future surges? Will there be future variants? We don't know. I do think we're going to have a period of time of tranquility with very few infections. uh, And that's a time to relax a lot of these mandates. But you know, it's hard to predict what will happen in the future. We've not always gotten that right. I think we should prepare for future spikes, but hope that they don't come. Let's listen to Trump's former testing czar, Admiral Brett Giroir, on CNN earlier today. The Biden administration has failed to reach out to the Republicans. They've politicized vaccination, which we warned against from day one. We all have to join hands, get rid of your political affiliations. We should know that Biden did uh, late, I think you could argue, um, throw Trump a bone and acknowledge the role that that Trump's Operation Warp Speed played uh, and also praising Trump for for getting a booster shot. Um, But the Trump administration itself doesn't exactly have a clean record when it comes to politicizing this pandemic. Do you see a way that the United States can come together on this? I, I mean, I still find it amazing that we were not able to even unite about beating this virus. Yeah, you know, if you look at why European countries are doing so much better on vaccinations, why many countries are, it's largely because uh, the political parties that often fight quite bitterly on all sorts of issues don't fight about vaccines. Uh, we've got to get back to that. And that requires us talking to each other across the political aisle and putting differences aside and focusing on getting all Americans vaccinated so we can actually put the pandemic behind us. Dr. Zha, good to see you again. Thanks so much. Have a great weekend. Coming up next, it was one of the deadliest days in Afghanistan for the U.S., 13 U.S. service members killed in the final days of war. And now a new Pentagon report shows the initial descriptions of what happened were not entirely on target. Stay with us. Topping our world lead today, the Pentagon wrapping up an investigation into that deadly suicide blast last August at the Kabul airport. The head of U.S. Central Command said that the attack was carried out by one single suicide bomber. Eleven Marines, one Army soldier, one Navy sailor were killed in the attack, along with at least 170 innocent Afghans. CNN's Orrin Lieberman joins us now live from the Pentagon. And Orrin, uh, the Pentagon originally had said this was a complex attack. Turns out, not so much. The initial description was that it was not just one bomber, but perhaps two suicide bombers, and even ISIS-K gunmen that opened fire after those detonations. Now we have a far clearer picture of not only the attack itself, but what led up to it and what happened right after it. Investigators say it was a single suicide bomber carrying what they say was a 20-pound explosive filled with 5-millimeter ball bearings, and when it detonated just after 5.30 p.m. on August 26th, it tore through the crowd around it. Investigators say the attack itself was not preventable. That's because they say the bomber likely used alternate routes to avoid Taliban checkpoints in getting to the Abbey Gate of Hamid Karzai International Airport at Kabul. 
those routes were sent out to allow U.S. citizens, uh, green card holders, and Afghan evacuees to get to Hamid Karzai International Airport during the evacuation. They say the suicide bomber himself likely used those as well. In terms of his identification, investigators did not say who he was, but CNN has previously reported that his name was Abdul Rahman Alogri, and he had been released from a prison just days earlier as the Taliban freed prisoners as they swept across the country. After the bombing itself, investigators say there were a number of warning shots fired, about 25 to 30 from UK forces on one side of the, the bombing, four from a single Marine nearby, as well as an unknown number targeting what they say was a man holding an AK-47. They don't know how many shots were fired there. That comes after the attack. This has been a months-long investigation to find out exactly what happened and whether it was preventable. Investigators say all those who were killed in the attack it was impossible to save them because of the logistics of the situation and how difficult it was and, of course, the severity of the injuries. Well, where does this go from here? Investigators during the course of their work spoke, uh, spoke with dozens of not only U.S. forces but also U.K. forces and others as well. Crucially, they did not speak with any Afghan witnesses and there were certainly many of them because of how crowded it was there. They say the situation simply made that impossible with no U.S. forces or diplomatic personnel on the ground in Afghanistan. And Orrin, I just want to make sure that, that our, our viewers understand, you're not saying that the situation was unavoidable, or the, or the report, I should rather say, th- they weren't saying that the, that the situation was unavoidable uh, in a more, in a larger metaphysical sense in terms of the decision to withdraw and how Biden withdrew and all that. They're just saying, like, given the conditions on the ground in that moment, it was unavoidable, right? Because there are, there is a larger political argument about how the exit was planned or not planned. Of course, you're exactly right, Jake. They're talking about only specifically this attack itself with what was there, the U.S. forces that were there, the command and control, and the options they had. Given the situation on the morning of August 26th, this attack by this one suicide bomber, they say was uh, impossible to prevent. All right, excellent. Thank you so much. Oren Lieberman at the Pentagon for us. Appreciate it. Coming up next, a black man dead at the hands of police, and now attorneys say there had been a tragic mistake You will see the newly released body cam video. That's next. Internationally, today, state officials are now trying to figure out if a Minneapolis police officer should or should not face criminal charges for shooting and killing a black man while executing a no-knock search warrant earlier this week. The victim, Amir Locke, was not a target of the raid, according to his attorneys and according to the police department. And we want to warn you, The video we're about to show you is disturbing. CNN's Omar Jimenez is covering the story for us. Omar, walk us through how this tragedy happened. Yeah, Jake, so it happened in the early morning hours Wednesday. The Minneapolis Police Department was basically executing a warrant stemming from a homicide investigation out of nearby St. Paul. And as you mentioned, the attorneys for Locke say he wasn't the target of the investigation and police say he was not named in any of the search warrants. But as police burst through, it basically seems to wake up Locke, who's wrapped in blankets at the time. And as he tries to get up, he's seen with a gun. Officers shoot. Now, police say the gun was pointed in the direction of the shooting officer, but based on the videos we've gotten in the picture, we can't independently confirm that. The parents of Locke are also speaking out for the first time. They had to watch that video before it was actually released and take a listen to his mom. Never would I have imagined that I would be standing up here talking about the execution of my son. 
yes. by the Minneapolis Police Department. Mm -hmm. sure. I should not have to be here. But it's become an all too familiar story. And Locke's attorneys mentioned that he was a lawful gun owner. And to quote one of his attorneys, he, say, he said, no lawful gun owner could have survived that situation. So, Omar, here's, here's what I'm confused about. Um, Minneapolis was one of the cities that introduced new policies on no-knock warrants after Breonna Taylor was shot and killed during a botched police raid at her apartment in, in Kentucky. So why was this no-knock warrant raid allowed to happen? Yeah, so in short, the city told me today that is what's under investigation. But to take you back to when they updated this policy back in 2020, they didn't ban no-knock uh, warrants outright. What they did was essentially reserve it for high-risk situations. And even then, police are, in most situations, are required to announce themselves before crossing that threshold into someone's home, unless a supervisor decides it would create an imminent threat to do so. We asked about that imminent threat, what it particularly was in this situation. That is what the city says is under investigation right now. Of note as well, I do want to mention that Locke's attorneys say that based on the information they have, they say that this search warrant was for a property seizure, not necessarily a seizure or apprehension of a person. But of course, we haven't seen the warrant ourselves, Jake. All right, Omar Jimenez, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Now are behind China's wall series in which we go behind the fanfare and the glamour of the Olympic Games, which are ongoing. The Chinese government hopes to use the games to distract the world from its crackdowns on freedom, its crimes against humanity, its genocide. Today, a cynical, some might even say sickening move by the Chinese government during its highly choreographed opening ceremony. Beijing gave the honor of being one of the two athletes to light the Olympic torch to a member of the oppressed Uyghur minority group in China's far west region, an ethnic minority that the Chinese government is right now committing genocide against. CNN's David Culver joins us live from Beijing. David, what message is the Chinese government trying to send here to the U.S. and other countries um, doing this, uh, putting a Uyghur? I mean, it's, it's so cynical. See, everything is, is just fine here. You guys are making a fuss out of nothing. That's the message, Jake. I mean, it, it's very clear. It's to the U.S., to the rest of the West. And, and I've been to a lot of these major government-coordinated events. They are near perfection when it comes to the production value and the performances. But they are, to use your word again, highly choreographed. This opening ceremony, it was no exception. Now, the Chinese choosing to profile this weaker skier, this really plays into the propaganda push that under the Chinese Communist Party's control, the ethnic, predominantly Muslim minority is not being widely abused and detained, but rather, as they like to portray it, flourishing. We've reported extensively on the crackdown facing the Uyghurs. We've been to the heavily surveilled region, Xinjiang hearing from families separated from their loved ones and put in camps. Immediately after our visit, Jake, the Chinese sent propaganda TV outlets into those same locations, speaking with those same individuals to directly refute our reporting. This staging for the opening ceremony, very much a part of that propaganda push, Jake. It's so uh, hideously offensive considering the, 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 the genocide, the forced sterilization, the murder, the rape. 
Let me ask you, um, uh, so Russian President Vladimir Putin did attend today's opening ceremony. He doesn't get offended by much, I suppose. Uh, after he held a, a summit with the head of China, uh, Xi Jinping, do we know, do we have any idea what they discussed? Well, state media putting a lot out on this. They're very proud of this get-together between these two, quote-unquote, good friends. Putin and Xi, according to state media, vowing to deepen their strategic coordination, adding that their relationship will have a far-reaching impact. And here's what's interesting, not an impact just on China and Russia, but the world at large. That's the message this is sending. It's far broader than just the domestic audiences. And, and this will include maintaining, as they put it, close high-level exchanges and supporting each other in safeguarding sovereignty, security, and development interests. This, as both countries, you and I have talked about this, have become increasingly assertive in what belongs to them. And, and we're seeing that play out with both Ukraine and Taiwan right now. The two also not so subtly are referring to the U.S., in vowing to respond to external interference and regional security threats jointly. The message reinforced by the optics here, Jake, Beijing will back the Kremlin. All right, David Culver reporting from Beijing. Thank you so much. Climate change is threatening the future of the Winter Olympics, according to a new report. This year's games are the first to rely almost entirely on artificial snow. Now, that's largely because Beijing does not traditionally get a lot of snow. But as CNN's Renee Marsh reports for us now, climate Climate scientists are warning that the lack of real snow at this year's Winter Games could become the norm. No natural snow, a Winter Olympics first. Over 100 snow generators and 300 snowmaking guns are doing what Mother Nature did not, blanketing Beijing's bare slopes with snow. It's not quite ideal, but... I would say we're all making the most of it. You definitely don't want to fall. It feels like pretty bulletproof ice. Climate scientists warn this scene will become the norm as global warming threatens the future of snow sports. A new report finds that viable venues for the Winter Games are dwindling. Iconic Winter Olympic host sites like Vancouver, Norway, Sochi and the French Alps are seeing temperatures warm and shorter and less reliable snow seasons. Of the 21 cities that have hosted the Winter Olympics, only one is expected to have the necessary conditions to host them again safely at the end of the 21st century if greenhouse gases are not drastically reduced. I worry that the mountains around me won't have snow uh, for the next generation, or, or maybe even in my lifetime with the, with the path that we're on. Two-time Olympic snowboarder Elena Height says climate change is already impacting her sport in her hometown of Lake Tahoe. Due to shorter winter seasons and a lack of snow, resorts have done away with this concave structure known as the half pipe, one of snowboarding's most famed contests. We don't have consistent enough snow for the resorts to be enticed to build them. So I see that and there are no younger generations coming into Lake Tahoe that will be able to be home and train in the half pipe and potentially pursue those Olympic dreams. Height says artificial snow as a substitute comes with higher injury risks. Less training coupled with increased danger are a worrisome combination for these athletes. Environmental advocacy group Protect Our Winters warns artificial snow has limitations. In order to make artificial snow, there's a temperature threshold. So you can't just, you can't make artificial snow in 40 degree weather. You still need cold temperatures. Fake snow also comes with environmental risks. 
Beijing, one of the most water-scarce cities in the world, estimates it will use some 49 million gallons of chemically treated water to make snow for alpine sporting events, something environmental advocates have criticized. So it's actually causing the problem that we're being affected by. I hope that we never get to the point where snowboarding isn't a viable sport because of lack of snow. And really, I think that we have the ability to make those changes now. Well, artificial snow can create a faster surface because it's almost 30% ice compared to real snow, which is closer to 10% ice. So it's a much harder, more slippery surface. And that is what creates the risk of more severe injuries when an athlete takes a fall. But outside of the Olympics, Jake's You have these ski resort towns with the economies that rely on this sort of thing. They are really being threatened by the climate change issue as well. Very upsetting story, Renee. Thank you so much for opening our eyes about that. Appreciate it. Coming up, a CNN exclusive, a previously unknown phone call from the White House to a Republican member of Congress on the morning of the insurrection. Who was involved? Why it matters? That's next. Welcome to the Lean. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Mike Pence takes on his former boss and declares Donald Trump was wrong about the election. Pence says not only could he not have overturned the election results, but it would be un-American to even suggest he do so. This comes just hours after the Republican National Committee rebuked two of its own for trying to get to the bottom of what really happened on January 6th. Plus, A Supreme Court spouse and her vocal far-right rhetoric, Ginny Thomas, the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, how her ties to cases before the court are raising new questions about potential conflicts of interest. And leading this hour, Putin side-by-side with his authoritarian ally in China, how the U.S. is responding to their shocking show of solidarity in the backdrop of a possible Russian invasion of Ukraine. As CNN's Kylie Atwood reports for us now, Putin and Xi's Cozy meeting is just the latest jab in the high-stakes duel over Ukraine's sovereignty. A show of solidarity between autocrats as the future of European security hangs in the balance. I'm glad to hold the first in-person meeting with President Putin in more than two years. As for our bilateral relations, they are developing linearly with the spirit of friendship and strategic partnership and have reached an unprecedented level. Meeting just as the Beijing Olympics are getting underway, pledging in a joint statement that there are no limits to their friendship and sending an ominous sign, saying that both nations oppose further enlargement of NATO and intend to counter interference by outside forces in internal affairs of sovereign countries under any pretext. The White House downplaying the importance of that meeting and shifting the spotlight back to Ukraine as Russia's military buildup along Ukraine's borders only grows. We have our own relationship where we engage directly uh, at a very high level, uh, as you all know. Uh, But our focus right now is continuing to unite with allies and partners to respond decisively if Russia further invades Ukraine. Yet many diplomats believe the Putin-Chi relationship will be a central factor in Putin's calculation over whether or not to invade Ukraine. U.S. officials have noted it was unlikely that an invasion would occur as the Olympics began. I think that probably uh, President Xi Jinping would not be ecstatic if uh, Putin chose that moment to invade Ukraine. Uh, So that may affect his timing and his thinking. But still, the U.S. and NATO allies are on edge. It is only prudent for us to continue to take uh, steps in the vein of 
defense and deterrence. Today, Secretary of State Tony Blinken meeting his Polish counterpart as U.S. troops arrive in Poland to showcase the United States' commitment to the NATO guarantee that an attack on one is an attack on all. We're also here at a time of um, real concern for uh, European security because of uh, Russia's aggressive posture toward, uh, toward Ukraine. All of this as the U.S. says it has intelligence that Russia has plans to amass thousands more troops in Belarus and could develop an elaborate, fake and graphic video that they could use as a pretext to invade Ukraine. Now, Jake, one thing that the two leaders announced today was a new deal for Russia to provide China with more Russian gas. Now, this is notable because Russian gas, Russian energy has been a central topic of discussion. There have been mounting concerns that Russia could cut off its energy supply to Europe. They are a dominant energy supplier to Europe, and that could create a widespread crisis, particularly if it is coupled with a possible Russian invasion into Ukraine. Jake. All right, CNN's Kylie Atwood for us. Thank you so much. CNN senior international correspondent Matthew Chance joins us now live from Kyiv, which, as I understand it, is how the Ukrainians uh, pronounce it or something like that. Uh, Matthew, U.S. officials claim this week that Russia is plotting an elaborate propaganda video to depict a fake attack against Russia. Um, American officials bristled when journalists had the temerity to ask for proof, God forbid. Uh, how is this potential plot, this allegation being viewed in Moscow? And, and as a longtime Moscow-based correspondent, does it strike you as strange that the Americans didn't give any evidence for this allegation? It is unfortunate because, you know, when you don't give evidence for a, an allegation like that, it opens the door for the Russians not just to deny it, but to, to ridicule it as well. Uh, and, and that's what the Russians have done. Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, within the past couple of hours, uh, calling that suggestion that there is a propaganda video, remember, that will be made in the future, according to the US. And that video will have explosions on it. It will have fake corpses on it. It will have NATO drones on it. It will have actors you know, pretending to be mourners. You know, a very high level of detail that was given uh, by the US official that, that told us about this, about what would be in this video that had not yet been made. Uh, the Russian foreign minister said it was delusional. He didn't just say it was fabrication. He said that. He said it was made up. But he also said it was delusional. And so, again, it, it gives the Russians not just to deny it, but to neutralize that allegation and other allegations that may be true um, ag against against them. And so, I, I, you know, I, I think it's really unfortunate uh, that, that that kind of very detailed uh, allegation was made. Uh, what was actually put into the public sphere. I understand why they've done it. They did it because they said they wanted to front foot this and make sure the Russians knew that this was something the United States was aware of in the hope of preventing it from happening. And of course, if it now doesn't happen, you can see how American officials will pivot onto saying, well, we, we look at the deterrent effect of, of, of what we said. But nevertheless, you know, it, you know, it is something that I think in a Russian context, the people of Russia, the news channels in Russia will, will point to and they'll, they'll somewhat ridicule, Jake. And Matthew, uh, we saw earlier today uh, how President Xi of China and President Putin uh, met, had a meeting, they're celebrating the Olympics. Uh, how are Ukrainian officials responding to that? Uh, well, I mean, it's, uh, it's a very uncomfortable picture for Ukrainian officials. I, I spoke to some people tonight in the Ukrainian uh, government about what they made of uh, Putin and Xi standing shoulder to shoulder, 
uh, calling for NATO not to expand any further, and specifically China agreeing with Russia that Ukraine should never join uh, the, the, the Western military alliance. And they said, look, we haven't got a comment on it publicly. We haven't even got a policy on it because they're in a difficult position. Uh, uh, China is a significant investor in, in Ukraine. There's economic problems in this country, and they don't want to come outright and, and criticize Xi Jinping for holding the same position as their arch nemesis, Vladimir Putin. But at the same time, again, this will have been very uncomfortable viewing indeed for the government in Ukraine as they watch that, uh, that pairing, that, that bromance between these two figures unfold. Matthew Chance reporting live for us in Ukraine. Thanks so much. Joining us now live to discuss Bill Taylor, the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine. Uh, ambassador Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. So let's start with that meeting uh, between Russian President Vladimir Putin and Chinese Premier uh, Xi Jinping, uh, the, uh, meeting in the sidelines of the Beijing Olympics. They released a joint statement that says, in part, the sides oppose further enlargement of NATO and call on the North Atlantic Alliance to its, abandon its ideologized, uh, ideologized Cold War approaches to respect the sovereignty, security, and interests of other countries, etc. Help us to understand, what is the message they are sending and to whom are they sending it? I assume they're sending it to the West and specifically to President Biden. I'm sure they are, Jake. I mean, they, here are the two largest autocrats, um, apparently in sync. The, the degree to which they're in sync is still to be determined. Um, Matthew mentioned that, uh, that uh, China has a lot of investments in Ukraine, and that goes both ways. The Chinese have hesitated to support any notion of the Russians invading Ukraine. Um, because they have the investments there. They're not. We remember that in 2014, the United Nations Security Council s- tried to sanction the Russian invasion and, and take over uh, illegal annexation of Crimea. The Chinese abstained that time. They mm. didn't support the Russians. So, so it's ambiguous what the, what the Chinese will actually do. When, they can make all these statements about we support the Russians, but uh, when it actually comes to their economic benefits, their economic equities, it may be different. Although some, some observers are also saying that how the United States and NATO respond to whether or not Russia invades Ukraine will be viewed very much by President Xi in terms of whether or not they do similar with Taiwan or Hong Kong. I am totally in agreement with that. I am sure President Xi is watching very closely how strongly, what the, how, what the force of the United States pushed pushback on Russia, how much the United States is, is aggressively trying to deter President Putin. It's not passive deterrence, it's active deterrence, moving troops, moving people, moving soldiers from the United States um, to Eastern Europe, um, being very clear about what the sanctions would be um, on, on, on Russia um, if they were to go across that border. So I think President Xi is watching carefully to see if the United States is pulling back as they kind of hoped after Afghanistan, um, or actively pushing back against the Russians. Do you see a significance with so many Western countries are boycotting diplomatically, not with their athletes, but diplomatically boycotting the Olympics, including President Biden? Do you see significance, <clears throat> pardon me, that um, President Putin is not? I mean, as I said earlier, I wouldn't expect President Putin to be offended by human rights abuses in China, even genocide against the Uyghurs. Uh, but is this an opportunity for him to, to bond with a, a fellow autocrat? It is an opportunity to stand with a fellow autocrat. Um, they, have, uh, they have a long border 
Um, they've got, uh, there are a lot of Chinese and not many Russians in, in Siberia. Um, they need to, Putin needs to be a little bit concerned about his big neighbor there. So the opportunity to go to Beijing and to stand next to him and put out this long statement, this long statement that, that highlights the importance of democracy in their two countries. It's, yeah. it's, it's interesting. It's uh, interesting is one word for those yeah. two countries talking about democracy. Yeah. So U.S. officials, I want to talk to you about the, what Matthew was uh, discussing a minute. U.S. officials alleging that Russia is preparing to create an elaborate graphic propaganda video that would depict a fake attack against uh, Russia. Russia denies it, calls it ludicrous. U.S. officials have not provided any proof to the public. When journalists have asked for evidence, given that governments lie, you know, we can say, yes, Russia, the Russian government lies more than the American government, but governments lie. Um, what's your take on this? I wouldn't put anything past Putin, but I don't know this to be true. Jake, getting intelligence released to the public is very difficult. Um, and so the United States government, the Biden administration, has had to move carefully, but, but they've moved pretty aggressively, more, more so than, than previous times, to, to declassify some of this intelligence that they've gotten. We remember last week um, about the, the Brits actually released some information uh, that the Americans had some, some role in uh, determining as well that said the Russians were trying to work closely with some Ukrainian RADA members, members of the parliament. Uh, we also remember... To stage a coup. To stage a coup. Yeah, and they, even, coup. they name names. Yeah. And they name names. I know some of those people that was named. And so most of those people are now in Russia. They fled with, with President Yanukovych to Russia in 2014. So those is not, not unbelievable. It, it, those are, those are cred, it's credible that they would do it. But they also released, the United States also released uh, intelligence about Russian uh, special forces already in Ukraine preparing these same kind of false flag mm-hmm. uh, attacks. These would be Russians attacking Russians and blaming it on the Ukrainians. Right. So, so that's, uh, that's, and it is exactly what Matthew said. That is, it's an attempt to highlight, shine light on what might happen so they don't do it. So they don't do it. Yeah, again, like I said, I don't, I don't doubt it. I just haven't seen any evidence for it. Ambassador Bill Taylor, good to see you as always. Thank you so much for being here. As President Biden weighs his Supreme Court pick new questions about the longest-serving justice and if he should perhaps recuse himself from some cases. Plus, the CNN exclusive, what we're learning about former President Donald Trump's phone call with a controversial Republican congressman on the day of the January 6th insurrection. Stay with us. Breaking news in our health lead, the United States has tragically now surpassed 900,000 deaths from COVID-19. That moments ago, according to data from Johns Hopkins University. But we should note, deaths are no longer spiking in the U.S. They're holding steady at a rate of 2,400 a day. A vast majority of those dying are unvaccinated. CNN's chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us now to discuss uh, Sanjay, I remember when we passed 100,000, uh, and what a calamitous moment that were, that our our next milestone, of course, will be a million. Yeah, I mean, this is um, you know these numbers. Uh, I think in the beginning of the pandemic, we sort of talked about the possibility that the numbers could be here. Uh, prepare for the worst, hope for the best, and you know, I mean, these are these are tragic numbers. Even if you go back and look at 1918. 
Uh, now, granted, the population of the world was about a third of what it is today, but you know that was a time when we did not have vaccines, we did not have intensive care units the, the way that we do the, the technology of today's medical system, and we've surpassed those death rates uh, from that time period. So, I, I you know it's tough to say over and over again. I know people don't like to hear it, especially people who've lost loved ones. But so many, so many of these uh, deaths, Jake, preventable certainly, uh, one since the vaccine came out. Yeah. Sanjay, a World Health Organization official is forecasting a, quote, plausible end game to the pandemic in Europe because of deaths plateauing there. Is the U.S. in the same boat? Yeah, I think it's, it's a very similar boat. I mean, we can look, first of all, just at immunity, you know, in the United States versus Europe. And we've, we've sort of tracked this all along since vaccines came out. And you'll see that when it comes to vaccination, it's pretty similar, uh, you know, pretty similar rates over there. And then if you add in natural immunity, you know, you do have high levels of immunity here. You also have a decreased severity of the virus in Omicron. I think that plays into this as well. And, you know, look, the warmer weather is around the corner, you know, still a ways away, but that's going to make a, a, an impact as well. I think a couple of caveats. One is that, you know, these are large populations that we're talking about. So you may see spikes in certain areas, even as the overall numbers come down. You mentioned this earlier, Jake, but when it comes to cases, they've gone down about 38 percent. You know, hospitalizations also down about 16 percent. Deaths uh, up about 7 percent, you know, sort of flat. That's, of course, a lagging indicator. And then I think it, it just it's this idea, Jake, of end game and, and what that means and what does endemic mean? I mean, this virus is here to stay. People have been saying this since the spring of 2020. It's that contagious. The remnants of the you know, descendants of the flu virus from 1918 still circulate today. So this virus is going to be around. It's going to be a question of how much we're willing to tolerate in terms of its impact on us. That's going to dictate as well what we refer to as the end game. Colorado lifted its mask mandate today. The the governor of Connecticut is signaling that he might drop the mask mandate for schools soon. Um, We are getting data about just how effective masks are. Given that data, are these states making the right move right now? I mean, it's, it's a tough call, Jake, because at the same time, we're talking about these numbers coming down. They're still really high. I mean, you know, kids, uh, infections and in kids had a record breaking month uh, overall last month. So the numbers are coming down and, and all those other factors we talked about make a difference. We did get some new data in terms of the odds of contracting COVID based on the types of masks that people wear. And, you know, you can see cloth masks to N95 masks. Some of those may not be available for children, but, you know, it makes a difference. I think the big thing here, Jake, really is that, unfortunately, when it comes to 5 to 11-year-olds, only about 22% are vaccinated and about 56% of of children 12 and older. It would be a lot better if you had higher vaccination rates in terms of curbing some of these other measures. Yeah. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you so much. Good to see you as always. The job of a Supreme Court justice, it's a lifetime appointment. But what about their lifetime partners? Could any influence be a concern? We'll take a look. That's next. In our politics lead today, the White House is accelerating its extensive Supreme Court vetting process as lawmakers and outside groups begin jockeying to promote their favored favored candidates and attack the candidates they do not like. The Biden administration has also finalized its team that will guide President Biden's eventual nominee through her upcoming confirmation battle. There's also growing interest in another member of the court. As CNN's Pamela Brown reports, critics say the Political activities of Ginny Thomas, the wife of Justice Clarence Thomas, 
raise questions about potential conflicts of interest for the court's longest tenured justice. Ginny Thomas has been an outspoken, passionate conservative activist for decades. The second Reagan revolution is growing. Most recently, signing on to this open letter from conservatives to House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy denouncing the January 6th committee. One month after that letter, Justice Thomas was the lone public dissent in a case involving the January 6th committee. No other justices indicated they would have granted former President Trump's request to block the document handover from the National Archives to the committee. Thomas provided no explanation for his dissent. There are surely substantive reasons consistent with his prior jurisprudence why Justice Thomas dissented from the court's uh, decision to not help President Trump in that case. But for folks who are already skeptical of the court, for folks who already view the court as a deeply partisan and political institution, the fact that Justice Thomas is the sole public dissenter there, given what we know about Ginny Thomas's involvement, I think sets off some alarm bells. Ginny Thomas's ties to former President Donald Trump and his aides go back years, including submitting a list of supposedly disloyal White House aides directly to Trump. Just before the January 6th riot, Ginny Thomas sympathized with the Stop the Steal rally-goers, writing, quote, God bless each of you standing up or praying. She later made clear these were posted before the violence at the U.S. Capitol. Given the appearance of a conflict, critics say Justice Thomas should have recused himself in the case involving the January 6th committee because of his wife's activism. Her defenders say she has every right to lead her own life and see no reason why that should have a bearing on her husband, if she's on a party in a case or financially invested. There is no indication she has a financial interest in cases before the high court. Clarence Thomas does not hold the views he holds because of any one person. Justices are going to have spouses that have the right to have opinions and be involved and engaged. And I trust Justice Thomas and other members on the Supreme Court bench to do what is right. But the debate has continued because of Ginny Thomas's ties to another issue before the court this term. She sits on the advisory board of a conservative group, National Association Scholars. That organization submitted two legal briefs to the Supreme Court in favor of plaintiffs challenging affirmative action and admissions at two universities. Peter Wood is president of the organization and says Ginny Thomas played no role in the legal briefs. As far as I know, she doesn't even know that we filed such briefs. I don't talk about those sorts of issues with her. But Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington is calling for Justice Thomas's recusal. In terms of the best practice, where his wife is um, closely affiliated with an organization that has taken a clear position, um, it is it, it seems clear to us that his impartiality could be questioned. The federal law states, quote, any justice, judge, or magistrate judge of the United States shall disqualify himself in any proceeding in which his impartiality might reasonably be questioned, end quote. But it's up to the individual justice to decide if there is a conflict. For his part, Justice Thomas has recused himself 32 times in the last 28 years, according to Gabe Roth's group, Fix the Court, but okay, never because of his wife's activism. In 2018, Jenny Thomas interviewed her husband for The Daily Caller, where he talked about his dedication to independence of thought. As a judge, you don't get to be on one team or the other. You have to think uh, 
independently in order to live up to the oath that you take. Some experts think justices ought to explain their decisions to recuse or to not recuse more often in order for more transparency. Ginny Thomas's activism stands in contrast to the spouses of other justices. Chief Justice John Roberts' wife, Jane, retired from practicing law and resigned from a leadership role with an anti-abortion group. When late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg became a circuit court judge, her husband left his law firm. And advocates of reform continue their calls for more transparent and stricter recuser rules. Recusal, rather. Jenny Thomas declined CNN's request for an interview and declined to comment. Jake? All right, Pamela Brown, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the outrageous language by the Republican National Committee in its censure of two Republicans investigating the deadly January 6th insurrection and the cleanup attempt they made just a few hours afterwards. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, new details about a phone call that then-President Trump made to Republican Congressman Jim Jordan on January 6, 2021. The House Select Committee now has the call records that reveal the pair spoke for about 10 minutes before the deadly insurrection started. CNN's Ryan Nobles joins us live now. Ryan, give us the timeline. When exactly did this call take place and, and what does it tell us? Well, according to White House call records that have been obtained by the January 6th committee and have been reviewed by two different sources uh, that spoke to CNN, there was a phone call that was placed by the White House, by President Trump, to Jim Jordan on the morning of January 6th and that that call lasted for 10 minutes. Now, this is significant information, and it's the first time that it's been revealed, uh, and it comes after Jim Jordan has been incredibly evasive as to the communication, the amount of communication that he's had with the former president on January 6th. In fact, almost every time he's been asked a question about his communication with Donald Trump, he's given a different answer, including today uh, when he told CNN that he only remembers talking to the former president as he left the House floor on January 6th. That's something he's never said before. He also told the House Rules Committee at one point that he thought the only time he spoke to the former president was after the attack. Now that directly contradicts what we're learning and also what he said today. And there are members of the Rules Committee making note of that. The House Rules Committee Chairman Jim McGovern tweeting today after seeing our story and pointing out that what they are learning directly contradicts what Jordan said in a House Rules Committee hearing. Uh, this, of course, getting a lot of attention because the January 6th committee is very interested in what Jim Jordan was talking to or talking about when he talked to the former president. Of course, Jordan, one of the leading Republicans that was attempting to get in the way of the certification of the election results on that day. He, avoided, he voted to object to those election results. And the committee right now trying to figure out a way to get information from these Republican members of Congress that they believe played at least some sort of a role in the violence that took place here on January 6th. Uh, right now, Jake, they're wrestling as to whether or not they should issue subpoenas. It's a complicated process, and the committee does not have a path forward. Jake. All right, Ryan Nobles, thank you so much. Uh, let's discuss uh, a lot to discuss today. Actually, uh, Kristen, let me start with uh, former Vice President Mike Pence mm -hmm. uh, just a, a couple hours ago calling out his former boss by name, stunningly, really. Um, let's, uh, let's take a listen. And I heard this week that President Trump said I had the right to overturn the election. But President Trump is wrong. I had no right to overturn the election. The presidency belongs to the American people, 
and the American people alone. And frankly, there is no idea more un-American than the notion that any one person could choose the American president. I mean, it's stunning not only that he said Trump was wrong, but he said what Trump was trying to do was, quote, un-American. These are pretty strong words from the former <laughs> vice president, to be sure. And I think up until this point, all of the data that I've seen doesn't actually suggest that Republicans had thrown Mike Pence overboard. Um, you'll recall I, I spoke with you a couple of weeks ago about some focus groups or a focus group I did for The New York Times, where we talked to a lot of Republican voters about January 6th. And when we talked about Mike Pence's role on that day, certifying the election, even folks who were pretty sympathetic to Trump and felt that the election had been fraudulent said, you know, I think Vi- Vice President Pence was in a tough spot. They sort of gave him a little, lot of leeway for, hey, he was in a, a difficult position. I don't know what I would have done if I was in his shoes either. But this, by coming out and uttering the phrase, Donald Trump was wrong, that's a little stronger than what we've heard from him before. And so if you may have been one of those Republicans on the fence, well, he was in a tough spot. He may be clarifying opinions one way or the other for a lot of people. And, and you know, Alencia, one of the things that's so interesting about this is it's so odd to see a politician do something Mm -hmm. that actually is against their own political best interest. And that's exactly what he did. What he said was true. Yeah. But that's not going to help him in anything he wants to do. No, it's not, because as we know, Donald Trump has a very strong grasp on the Republican Party. We see what's happening at the RNC meeting. They're censuring people who are on the committee. You know, it it is interesting to hear that Vice President uh, Pence is doing this now. We have to wonder what this means potentially for midterms, what his influence could be versus Trump's influence. And so I'm grateful to hear it, but it's partly a little too late, but it will be interesting to see what smoke will come uh, Vice President Pence's way because of this. Uh, and Gloria, let's talk about the RNC yeah. today uh, voting to censure uh, Congresswoman Liz Cheney and Congressman Kinzinger. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're basically being punished because they're working with Democrats to investigate what happened on January mm-hmm. uh, 6. But here's part of the document uh, from the censure. It says, quote, Cheney and Kinzinger are participating in a Democrat-led persecution of ordinary citizens who engaged in legitimate political discourse. Now, Congresswoman Liz Cheney posted video of uh, the January 6th rioters, the insurrectionists attacking cops, and said this is not legitimate political discourse. RNC Chair Ronna McDaniel is trying to clean it up. She's saying, no, 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 we don't mean the the violent ones. Um, But the censure keeps it pretty vague who they're talking about. They could have called out the violent ones in the censure if they wanted to. No, they, they didn't want to. I think the Republican Party uh, is a wholly unsubsidiary right now of Donald Trump. And it used to be that you just had to say, okay, you know, I think the election might have been rigged. Maybe there was something wrong. Now you have to be pro-insurrectionist. I mean, it, it, with Trump saying that he would pardon these folks, he, he stepped it up a notch. So it's not only rigged election, it's these people didn't do anything wrong. It was legitimate political discourse, no matter how they try and uh, put the genie back in the bottle. I don't think they can really do that. And so you see Mike Pence today making it very clear he's not on that team anymore. This, they had had a separation. They hadn't talked for a year. This was a divorce, totally. And um, Mike Pence, I believe if he runs, it won't matter whether Donald Trump runs or not. I yeah. think yeah. this is it. The, the, this censure, though, today, I mean, yeah. you have to really say it is the culmination yep. of a shift, you know, for many members of the Republican Party. It, it was about a year ago where after January 6th, we saw certain members, including 
uh, 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 Kevin McCarthy as well from the House as well come out and criticize the events of that day. What a shift from that. And I have to say, just as someone who was also there, I do think it's worth noting as someone who was there reporting at the Capitol, that language as well, just detached from fact, really. When yeah. you think about, uh, you know, seeing, uh, it is true, not everyone there was violent. There were thousands of people there. But when you do think of the people that were breaking windows, that were hoisting American flags as they did slam on doors as well, that, uh, you know, I think of the person as well that uh, uh, saying through a bullhorn, move forward, move forward as a crowd goes against police barricades, as well as members of Congress who were forced to evacuate and members of the media too, you know, all of that is worth kind of restating when we pair that with the language today as well. Yeah, and, well, and just also to make the point that, that the January 6th committee is not investigating people who are peaceful on the mall mm. who, came no. to, who, right. you know, who were right. exercising right. their First Amendment rights. That's not what the investigation is. Well, there's, there's a real big desire among rank-and-file Republican voters, I think, to draw a very big distinction between mm. what happened at one end of Pennsylvania Avenue and what happened at the other. We heard that in those focus groups, that there's this real sense among Republican voters that this isn't what our side doesn't do that. Our side doesn't hurt cops. Our right. side doesn't break windows. That's not what we do. And so that this today, I think this sort of secondary statement from Ronna McDaniel is trying to, to draw a distinction that they did not draw very clearly in that article. Except can I say... Um, and, and, and Gloria, I'll get you to weigh in on this. Um, there's a tweet from November 2020 that's mm-hmm. still up on the RNC page, right? Still on their Twitter feed. It's, it's a video, let's put it up if we can, a video of Sidney Powell, the untethered uh, <laughs> from reality attorney who made all sorts of lies. And it says, we will not be intimidated. We're going to clean this mess up now. President Trump won by a landslide. We're going to prove it, blah, blah, blah. I mean... If Ronna McDaniel wants to draw the distinction between the people who abided by the law and people who are tethered to reality and those who are not, she might want to start with her own social media coordinator. Right. Yeah, and the, and the point is that Donald Trump doesn't want her to. I mean, she's taken her orders from Donald Trump. And the first line of that censure resolution really struck me because it says, Whereas the primary mission of the Republican Party is to elect Republicans who support the United States Constitution Mm -hmm. and share our values. Final thought? You know, it's interesting. Democrats, we censure people who are voting against ways to save democracy. The GOP is censuring people who won't uphold their plan to destroy democracy. And that's the big difference. And we should we'll see that in the midterms. All right. Thanks to one and all. Uh, How going for gold takes its toll. A medal-winning Olympian on the mental health challenges facing the athletes. Stick around. In our sports lead, the Winter Olympic Games are officially underway in Beijing, China, with the opening ceremony taking place this morning. And while the Games happen under a cloud of diplomatic boycotts and human rights abuses and strict coronavirus protocols, it's also a chance to watch the best young athletes in the world putting their skills on display. And here to discuss former Team USA figure skater Gracie Gold, who brought home a bronze from the 2014 Olympics. Gracie, good to see you. This Olympic environment is so different than the one you competed in. Athletes are living in this strict COVID bubble, their family, their friends, their supporters not there. Do you think that takes away for the Olympic experience or is it the competition itself that matters the most? Yeah, in 2014, Sochi, the Olympics that I went to, you know, the whole world was different in a way because it was pre-pandemic, it was pre-COVID. And 
to try to pictures, you know, my Olympic experience without, you know, my mom, without my sister, without the variety of spectators. It's almost like apples and oranges. It's hard to compare an Olympics without, you know, and to have gone without my family support, I think is extremely difficult for all of the athletes out there. And with the COVID protocols and being in, I've never done an Olympics in a bubble, but I have done events last year and this year in a bubble. And it was, it was tough in a lot of ways, the change in routine, the disruption in your routine, you know, athletes rely on a routine for trust in yourselves. And so that when you go out there to compete, you know, the routine is there. It's just like another day. So it's, it's a lot. I think it's a lot for these athletes to take Mm -hmm. on. And I think most of them handling it extremely well. In addition to being a top-tier athlete, you're also a passionate advocate for athletes' mental health after some of your own struggles with anxiety, depression, and an eating disorder. How do you think not being able to participate in some of the events and this strict quarantine bubble with no family members, how do you think that might affect the mental health of these athletes who are already under incredible pressure? It's definitely just kind of adding to that pile of stress. And don't get me wrong, the Olympics are an incredible experience. They are life-changing. And my Olympic experience was magical in so many ways. And ultimately, you know, the performance aspect is why everybody is there. And that is maybe the most important. But you can't perform well. You know, you might have trained physically and done all the right things. But mentally, that takes a huge toll. And I think... People that aren't at the Olympics, you know, they saw, I think we all saw how the world, there was a deterioration in so many people's mental health during, you know, the first part of the pandemic. It's still going on in many ways. So, you know, you have skier Michaela Schifrin, anything less than gold in her runs is considered a disappointment. So she is going out to perform, you know, with all of that pressure. And then there's all these COVID restrictions and, you know, just living, yeah, in this pandemic world and in China with very strict lockdown, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot of stress. So much of it is out of the athlete's control, which just again, adds kind of to the pile. But as a a mental health advocate, what, what advice would you give people? What advice would you give any athletes who start to feel uh, pressure? I know that the USOC has worked pretty hard to put some mental health protocols in place. You know, it's been a newer, I don't even want to call it a trend, but, um, you know, putting mental health on the forefront. So I hope that the athletes, you know, are able to take advantage of that. And I found comfort in during my own Olympic stress. In some ways, the skating part was even less stressful because it was the only thing that was familiar to me is that everything else, you know, millions of people watching, new environment, and just the grand scale that when I got out on the ice, I was like, oh, this, I've done this part mm-hmm. a million times. Like I have trained for so many years for this, I've done this before. And so hopefully the athletes, you know, can just really, really enjoy the time that they have doing whichever sport that they do. Right. And just take advantage of whatever mental health is there, trying to connect with the friends and family um, digitally and the other athletes and teammates that are there, I think will be really important. And you've been working on your figure skating comeback, including an impressive showing at the national championships last month. Um, What does the future look like for you? Uh, Another trip to the Olympics, perhaps? 
We'll see. Um, I mean, the verdict's still out on that. But in the meantime, um, I'm doing some Olympic reporting and I have a memoir coming out that I'm really excited about. And for everyone in the U.S., um, headlining the Ice Dreams Tour. So we have a traveling show tour and um, current Olympians, Tim LaDuke and Ashley Kane, which are on Team USA's current Olympic team. They will be there with me. Former 2014 Olympic teammate Jeremy Abbott will be there. So um, if we're in a city, um, you guys can come check me out there. Awesome. Gracie Gold, thanks so much. Good to see you. A fisherman's tale that is unbelievable and true. Dramatic video of a rescue in the frigid water frigid waters off Massachusetts. Three fishermen faced death after their boat capsized and sank off the coast of Massachusetts Tuesday. One of the survivors telling CNN affiliate WBZ that they held on to floating hoses for 45 minutes in the freezing water. The whole boat flipped over. We got like, thrown in the water. And I remember, I remember sw- sw- swimming away from the boat because I didn't want to get pulled down in the suction. Shaken, bruised, but alive. Roderick is recovering in a hospital thanks to local rescue teams and the U.S. Coast Guard. All three men survived. The owner of the boat says it was fully renovated in 2018. He adds, the hoses to which the fishermen clung do not normally float. Join me Sunday for State of the Union. We have an exclusive with Democratic Senator Joe Manchin and Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski together. I'm also going to talk to the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, Sunday at 9 a.m. Eastern and at noon. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I'll see you Sunday morning. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.